one of the things we're doing is um, making the YouTube videos as a way of getting free advertising instead of paying for response. Yeah, and you know, put that that out onto our different platforms to drive mm -hmm. business to the website in terms of if you find a passionate guy who's talking about those ingredients and why he selected that certain type of salt, why he picked that type of sweet Italian basil that's good. for the sauce. You know, and that's, I think customers want that intimate story about the ingredients and the sauce itself versus just going to buy ragu mm -hmm. or, or prego or, you know, rayos or whatever crap is on the shelf that's just manufactured in a, in a factory. They want to have a story attached, you know, just like any other type of craft beers and local breweries. It's, it's the thing now. I mean, uh, you start from nothing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, he's starting from nothing. And, you know, he asked me to help him, you know, several years ago and I've been loosely helping him along the way. Um, worked at, um, Farmers markets in the uh, fall of 2019 on Sundays, selling the sauce at the farmers market stand. And uh, you know, 2020 they couldn't have any of those. Now they're back. It's you know, we're gonna find vendors that are willing to carry that stuff in the farmers markets he's kind of put it on the shelf in places mm -hmm. we got it on harris teeter shelf now in a couple small places around here that's good so and, and the whole idea is that steven and i help him with everything pro bono and then once it's profitable we have we have a share of profits for life that's cool yeah. mm -hmm. so it's an interesting idea actually yeah it, he's yeah it's it's good stuff. And, it, and it's requiring like people to know like video production and that kind of stuff. Well, he doesn't know. Yeah, we don't know anybody. You're mm -hmm. the first person I've seen doing it. So obviously I have to talk to you about it. But, um, you know, we, we're thinking about finding a, a local church that we could use their kitchen. Oh, okay. Because a lot of churches here have kitchens for you know whatever types of events and they're probably like mass production yeah you know and then you could dress it up a little bit mm -hmm. and you know um you know do like a five ten minute video on his sauce on like and then another one we want to like really go through the ingredients and mm -hmm. and have him drive through like why he picked this perfect this specific type of himalayan sea salt so if i go to write it wants to make a YouTube channel to speak about recipes, basically. Recipes, ingredients, okay. food, family, like just the, and that's like the, the, the baseline for the, for the brand as it were, is forming that more intimate emotional connection with customers versus just being that like, mm -hmm. that thing you mindlessly pick off a shelf and throw in your cart. I mean, uh, if he's interested, I'm just thinking, you know, you, just having ideas uh, randomly. Um, if it's interesting, we can make like a session during the podcast so we can combine the two of them. We make a session break, kind of. Yeah, no, if, where if we do like the recipe with him. And at the same time, we can also speak with people, random people with the podcast. So combine the two of them can be an idea. Yeah. And, and he's, you know, he was from New York, but he's now from 
in, in Virginia Beach with his wife and his daughter. And so that's the whole plan is to, you know, drive that by local, mm -hmm. you know, by Virginia type thing here in the area. And then I like the idea. I mean, yeah. And neither Stephen and I have anything to do with actual video production. But have you started already? Or we're, we're starting to um, make storyboards. Like we, we're, we're kind of blotting out on just okay. literally PowerPoint of, okay, you know, maybe two minutes cover this, two minutes cover that. Okay. You know, not really a script because this guy will not follow a script if he gets in front of mm. the camera. He will just ramble. Yeah. He kind of podcast, you know. <laughs> he's, he's, he's Italian. I don't know. Okay. I don't know if I'm <laughs> insulting you, but he, he likes to, he's the New York Italian. Yeah, there's that, you know. Yeah, yeah. He is... And he is just, he loves to talk about Italian food and really about, you know, he's had, his, he's got an interesting story. I mean, he formerly was, uh, spent a few years homeless in New York City. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and, and he's now clean as well, living, you know, alcohol and drug free for almost two decades now. But that background is, has fed his intensity now. Mm -hmm. In his mid to late fifties, in terms of his his desire to be successful, his desire to pass along something to his daughter, and so he's very hungry for it. And you know, you can appreciate somebody who's striving for that. And, yeah. But he's he's got certain skill sets, and he's he's seen other skill sets in me, and I've found Stephen, and I see this setup, and I don't have to do with it already. So I was like, oh, I'll talk to Vito about it. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm definitely in if you want. Okay. To. Yeah, I mean, he, 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 we can set him up with Zoom or if he, next time he's yeah, in Virginia yeah. Beach. Because he splits his time. Zero, right? But, like, he, well, he, he splits his time now between New York and here okay. because his day job for the last 20 something years is running his own blacktopping business. Mm. And so he's had more business in New York where there's more blacktop. Okay. Re repairing um, parking lots, painting parking lots. Things like that. So during the busy season for that, which is the spring and summer, he he splits his time a lot. Is in New York and Virginia, wherever there's work, he's doing mm -hmm. that, and then using that money to keep feeding into this. He just keep, keeps being busy. Yeah, just doing something for the family and stuff. Yep. And he, the sauce is in like six or seven different stores in New York City as well, because he's taken several pallets in his truck. When he's been down here, he's picked up pallets from the manufacturer that, mm -hmm. that makes his, his recipe and taken it up there and sold it and gone and was going into stores and doing tastings and things like that. And, you know, COVID hit and they're not allowed to do that. So sales slumped because it's not like it's a recognizable brand, with, you know. Mm -hmm. So Did you already, has you already thought about uh, like a name, brand name or a yeah, logo or something? Yeah, it's Sperato. Sperato, okay. Yeah. Hope. That's what I'm told. It means hope in Italian. So okay. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, is there a Z in it? In it? No, no. It's. Oh, I'll just open up a web page for you. Oh, so he already has. Oh, he's yeah, he has a web page. You can buy it through his web oh, page. Cool, so yeah, it's already a, a good point. Already. Yeah, and Stephen's about to um, redo the web page to make it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because I've tried to reach uh, reach out Stephen, but uh, it wasn't available apparently this week. 
he's he's a busy uh, actually he also um Oh yeah, okay. Sperare, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, and he he picked that word because of his background. It looks uh, it looks a uh, well done website. I mean. Yeah, it, 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 the he, he needs to work on the the um, purchasing process. Apparently, it's still clunky in mm -hmm. interaction, and so they're getting a lot of people into the queue, and then they get frustrated with it for whatever reason, and they're leaving and not finishing through the purchase. So he just needs people like for the procurement stuff, or uh... yeah. the well, the the actual like purchasing electronic process through oh, the website okay, is yeah. is clunky. Uh, was... So they'll enter in the certain information, and something will go wrong, and then they'll just quit the process. Mm -hmm. um, and he wants to find some kind of online or some kind of purchasing software you, like that you can link to your website to run your purchasing that will keep track of the data of how many people enter your purchasing queue mm -hmm. versus how many people actually end up pressing send or click, you know, purchase. Because yeah, yeah. that, that difference, you can identify where along that continuum someone gets frustrated and quits. Yeah. Or the attention is lost. Yeah. Yeah. Can you make it quick or a couple, you know, like that Amazon thing, the one-click one, the one -click purchase yeah. because it's just so easy now. Yeah. How much more spending you people have? On so is he all by himself that is doing this, or mm -hmm. uh, does he have other people that like are acting in with the website, or I don't know? Um, right now, it's just it's just us. Okay. He isn't anybody else. So he he did the website himself through just self study, mm -hmm. um, and. We're also helping them set up like the QuickBooks and actually like putting accounting procedures in place mm -hmm. so that we can possibly go and, and look at a bank loan, you know, to help yeah. with, you know, a certain chunk to keep around to, to pay suppliers and to pay the manufacturer because uh, he's not in any place where he can make it himself mm -hmm. just yet. So he has to pay what's what's called a co-packer in that industry. A, a co-pack? So what, what is that? So it's basically, um, if you think of any grocery store that carries their own brand of pasta sauce or potato chips or anything like mm -hmm. that, they don't own the factory that makes those potato chips. They're just a, a manufacturer that you've never heard of mm -hmm. that contracts out yeah. work from Kroger's or from, you know, so a place like that usually has areas for startups, like what he's trying to do, to... Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's kind of a... Um, a Copex is kind of a allowing third parties to sell through your store, basically. They, they make... They, you give them a recipe, and they'll source the ingredients for you, and they'll make it to your recipe mm -hmm. for a price. And okay. then you can pick it up and do what you want with it. Or you can pay somebody to come pick it up and distribute it for you. So right now what he's been doing is paying this legitimate marinara sauce manufacturing <laughs> place, you know, price. And then he takes his truck over there, takes the pallet into the back of his truck and mm -hmm. takes it to a, uh, a storage locker in Virginia Beach. And then has been selling it to different shops in the area a couple cases at a time and then taking several cases or an entire pallet 
and driving up to New York and distributing it to all the different stores. Like he's acting as the distributor of his own sauce while somebody else is making it. And I understand. It's yeah. Not very easy. No, it's not. And yeah. it's it it's difficult to control the the quality of it then because somebody else is making it and it's not also, I think the distance is making a big impact in that because, you know, actually for the quality, you cannot control that uh, like at first glance, you know? Yeah. So it's very difficult. I mean, I admire it. Yeah. And every every batch is a little different. He gets frustrated and I've heard him speak because he wants the garlic sliced a certain way so you can see like whole slices. Mm. And sometimes it gets minced up and sometimes it's whole sliced. and. To someone who's very particular, that makes a big difference. But if you look at all the different marinara sauces on the shelf, there if you see ones with like real thin slice, but you know, whole shaped chunks of garlic, that's a very unique visual for a, a sauce. Mm -hmm. And he's basically having them put you know, basil leaf cut in like three or four chunks and not like mincing that or pulping that, but you can see floating basil leaves too. So visually it's it's very different from Rayos and from Prego and from Ragu. I probably understood that that's what attracts people, like mm -hmm. like visualizing the, the stuff that it is innate. Yep. That you can actually see what, what you're eating. Let's say. Exactly. And that and so sometimes he gets it and they've made it just right and it's perfect and he's super happy and sometimes he's gotten it and he they've, you know, just garlic pressed it, just mm -hmm. just pulped it and you can see little bits and Oh, I like it. And he gets frustrated. He's like, it's not what I wanted, but you know, we gotta sell it anyway. It's <laughs> so he yeah, he's his name is Doug. He's he's a good guy, but he's he will talk about food for hours. I mean if if he's Italian, he's Italian. I understand it. Yeah. He doesn't I don't know if he speaks Italian or not, but uh he's Italian in terms of what Americans conceptualize as the loud mm -hmm. Italian uh, from from New York City, that is him. Is it New York City or New Jersey? He's he's New York. Okay. Yeah, because there is a big community of Italians in New Jersey. You know. Okay, I did not know that. I've only been to New York City like three or four times okay. in my life, and I mean, very sure. So only once, so I don't know yeah. much about New York City. Yeah, I, the first time I ever went was 2008, and my college roommate. At some point, late in our, we did we both did five years at Ohio State. At some point in our fourth or fifth year, he decided he wanted to try to be an actor. Mm -hmm. So then he started doing plays at Ohio State. And then he decided, when I graduate, I'm going to go to New York and get famous. <laughs> so uh, when we graduated, we, his older brother, myself, and him piled everything into their parents' Avalon. I literally was in the back seat, basically in, in mobile, <laughs> from Cincinnati to New York. Yeah, I mean, it was very easy to sleep. And we got there and we threw all this crap in this really tiny apartment. Um, I think we so stayed, what, what was the city that he moved to? To New York City. I, I think it was, um, I want to say it was Brooklyn. Oh, okay, so it was like drama actor. Yeah, he wanted to be a drama actor. He wanted mm -hmm. to do plays. I mean, he eventually wanted to be on TV too because I think that's where the money is, but he was wanting to start plays. So he moved there and I mean, we were probably there for about 24 to 48 hours in 2008. He literally dumped his stuff off, went out to eat a couple of times 
And then myself and his older brother got back in the now empty car and drove all the way back to Cincinnati. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was it's a good road trip. Yeah, it was. It was quick. And then I went back in two years later in 2010. Yeah, 2010 for Valentine's Day. Because mm -hmm. um, I was uh, an old friend of mine. She had moved to New York at that time. And I went up uh, to see her. And Dan was there as well. So we all went out to a few bars. And I remember there being like dog shit on the sidewalks and trash bags and places. Like just because I think that at that point there were, the trash workers were uh, on strike. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this place is gross. Yeah. And then the next time I went was to help um, Doug at, it was in Manhattan at the Javits Center, which is like the big convention center right there on the mm -hmm. Hudson, I think. And uh, it was the 2019 Fancy Food Show. Literally like four convention floor. Only food. Of food. Yeah, and like manufactured from across the world. And, you know, and we were in the state of Virginia's small, like, foodie aisle on the, in the basement level and i'd say there were probably 30 to forty thousand people there every day walking through these aisles kind of a, a food con it, exactly what it was it was an industry day for you know there were buyers from every major grocery chain looking for new products to test out that's cool and you know collecting pamphlets of information mm -hmm. and they would you know there was like teams of them and they you walk up and you'd be like all right, I think that's Whole Foods. And, you know, and like, is, is this convention still going on? Or uh, I don't think 2020 happened. Uh, but, COVID, but yeah. yeah, but it was, like, it is a, I mean, it's an international event twice a year, one in the summer and one in the winter. Okay. And it's like the International Fancy Food Show. And I think the winter one is on the West Coast and the summer one is always in New York City. And this thing, mm. I mean, it was just, packed to the gills of people and the, uh, i know i just thinking but do they change the kind of food depending on which season they're doing the convention i'm not sure um I, I i've never been to the winter one so i don't know but i mean this this was literally thousands of booths mm. it was i don't think you could have changed <laughs> the, the type of food because there was every food i mean there was an international section like one of the floors was all, you know, there was a Malaysian area and an Indonesian area and a, and a Japanese area. I mean, it was every single nationality had representatives from embassies and oh, consulates to, you know, like to make international mm -hmm. food export and import deals. I mean, this thing was a, this is a monster of an industry for the food. Yeah. I mean, if you can actually make deals there, it's good. Yeah. And it was, I mean, there were people walking around that were, glass jar manufacturers and label printers and cap manufacturers wow. handing out pamphlets on their caps and their jars and their labels so yeah. you could sit there and like <laughs> it was that it was that intense of a i like the intensity i mean it was crazy i i loved it and i i worked in restaurants for like nine years so to be able to, you know, be in the food industry, even just for a little bit, is very energizing. I liked it a lot, and I still enjoy it. Um, what, what did you do then when you worked for a, a restaurant? Oh, what did I not do? It was <laughs> so my first job, I was 15 and a half. I was in AP European history my sophomore year in high school, and Mrs. Beach was like, who wants a job? 
<laughs> my hand, I don't even think I listened to her. I just shot my hand up because I wanted money. And she knew a guy um, who was a regional manager. Have you seen the, now it's popping up in this area, First Watch restaurants? No. Uh, I mean, I know, I've heard the name. You've heard the name? I've never okay. been like in these places. It's a, I mean, it's now growing in terms of a footprint across the East Coast and some out. But it was originally the franchise or the, the original corporate headquarters in Cincinnati. Hmm. So back in 2000, I was there on the weekends as a 15-year-old busting tables. Um, every weekend, busting tables. And when you know it was slow and they needed help prepping food for the next day, I'd do that, you know, chopping up cantaloupe and watermelon and stuff. So whatever is needed, you can do that. That was yeah, I was doing that, whatever I was allowed to do. And at, at that point in time, because I was under 16 or because I was under 18, I forget. I could only work four hours straight and then I had to have a 30 minute break. Mm. So I'd get there and clock in at 7.30 and then I'd clock out at 11.30, eat lunch, clock back in at noon and then work for another two or three hours and then my parents would come pick me up because I didn't even have a driver's license at this point. It was only like a 10 minute drive from my house, so it was no big deal. Uh, and then while I was still working there, um, over the summer between my junior and senior year in high school, I got another busboy job at a golf country club. Hmm. And so I'd work in the mornings at the breakfast restaurant and then at night at the uh, golf, rich people club. Yeah, at the rich people club. <laughs> and and I was like 60 to 65 hours a week. I think that's illegal, but it was two different jobs. I mean, yeah. No one knew. Um, so there's those two, and then I got you. You've been doing that for nine years, both of them? Oh, no, I did those for the the country club was one summer. The busboy job was for about two years. Um, then I got a job at Ruby Tuesdays filling salad bars. Okay. And at that point, I was still too young to serve alcohol, but once I was old enough, uh, then I became a server and I hosted. And then I was dishwashing, and they had me doing food prep as well. Mm -hmm. And then when they were, um, when I was even older, they had me cook because I kept that job throughout college. Mm -hmm. Like I would go to Ohio State and be a student, and I eventually got a job up there too at a different restaurant. But whenever I was back in Cincinnati to see my parents or home for summer vacation for any amount of time, I could walk into any of the Ruby Tuesdays in Cincinnati. I knew one of the, I would know one of the managers, and they'd just be like, "All right, Paluto, you need a shift? Yeah. What do you need? You know, what gap do you have in your your schedule? Like, hey, can you host tomorrow? Yeah, I'll be there. Like, it was like five bucks an hour plus tips. Didn't care. As you know. I mean, it's so good. Yeah, like for your age, 40, 50 bucks in cash. You know, here I am, like a nineteen or twenty year old. I just didn't care. It was just, I was doing something constructive and making money. Um, and then when I was a junior in college. That's when I got the job as a line cook at an Italian restaurant. And I think it was it was Chipotle style service, but Italian food. Mm -hmm. If you've been to your pie over in the uh, Ward's Corner area over here, uh, yeah, where you kind of like go through and they assemble something in front of you, yeah, it's yeah. exactly what it was. It was, cool. it was right there, and we made everything from scratch, like all the pesto sauces. And you were in the line, right? And I was on the line, mm -hmm. and I was also you know making those sauces from scratch beforehand. And I went from the $7 an hour line cook all the way up to the salary general manager there before it closed. Just climbing the ladder. Yeah, it was, and I loved it. Like it was, I was in school full time. I was there 50 hours, 60 hours a week. When I was a, 
an hourly employee, I'd clock out at 40 hours mm -hmm. and work the rest of the week off the clock. I, I never, they never paid me overtime. <laughs> it was, I was extremely, I was breaking the law a lot. Edit that part out for me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and my buddy Lee, it was because I was a sophomore um, in the dorm rooms, same dorm my freshman and sophomore year. And this guy, Lee, was the RA my freshman year, and then he was the resident manager of the RM. So he was in charge of all of the RAs my sophomore year in the same building. So he was a couple years older than me. And, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. just, just to let like Italians you know, know what sophomore means. Okay, second year in college. Okay. I was, yeah, I did five years eventually. So yeah, freshman, first year, sophomore and second year. So I was a second year and my buddy Lee was a fourth year about to graduate. And it was probably about, you know, three or four months before he graduated. And I saw him walking into the, our dorm building together. Mm -hmm. And he's got this little weird pamphlet that's like spiral bound. It didn't look like a textbook or any type of schoolwork that I, I knew of. And I pointed out, like, hey, Lee, what the hell is that? And he's like, oh, you know, I entered this into the business competition at, at the, the business school, Fisher, where I was at, you know, I eventually graduated from that. I was a marketing major, but at that point, as a sophomore, I was, I don't even know. Mm -hmm. I, was, I think I was a landscape architect. What was it at that point? Yeah, it changed so many times, but and I was like, he's like, I think I'm really going to do it, you know, on campus here. And he didn't know about, you know, the breakfast restaurant that I had been at for a couple of years mm -hmm. and the Ruby Tuesdays, which at that point I'd been at for uh, at least two years or three years. And, you know, the, uh, the country club, I didn't talk to him about any of that. But I said, hey, if you actually do that. I'll come work for you. I'll be your best employee. And he's like, all right, blew it. And we'll see. <laughs> I was a bit of a goofball. You know, I mean, why not? You yeah. Try at least. Yeah. But I knew I would be good at it. And, you know, I, I looked through it. I was able to like, oh, Italian food. Like, and I was already really good at making breakfast food. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, it's something else that I'm going to enjoy. And, you know, here comes the fall of my junior year, my third year. And he's getting the funding for it. And it's okay. actually, it's going to happen. And he lets me know, he gives me a text or a call or whatever. And he's like, Hey, like I've hired somebody to be the manager. It was, I forget the guy's name, but he at the time was, I think a, a, a senior about to graduate with his degree in restaurant management or mm -hmm. hospitality management. So he knew the industry from a managerial level. And he's like, do you want to come in and interview with the two of us? I'm like, heck yeah, man. <laughs> so I come in, I fill out the application real quick, uh, and you know, slide across the table. We we're at a Starbucks inside of a Barnes and Noble at, at campus, and you know, he looks at it and he's like, "Oh, you got a lot of restaurant experience. I didn't know. <laughs> Give me a job. Like, I want money. I will work for you. Like, let's do this thing." And it was like late November of two thousand and five. We opened it up. You know, we went through a couple of weeks of training. 2005? Yeah. It was a long time ago. It was a long time. I'm old. <laughs> and, I love uh, that old man. Uh, I feel old. My <laughs> bones. And, um, yeah, he, he opened it up November of 2005. I don't know, like the funding for it, like some of it was like cash from friends and family. Mm -hmm. And then his parents put their house's equity up as uh, collateral for the rest of the small business loan 
and uh, we opened and all of the pesto sauces were from scratch and we made a, like everything we could from scratch and they had hired some chef to actually design the menu and train all seven dollar an hour schleps <laughs> to make this stuff and it was but it was very simple in terms of the ingredients and there was we would get a styrofoam bin of probably 20 or 30 pounds of basil mm -hmm. every week and i would sit there and snap oh, wow. the leaves off like i was destemming basil leaves <laughs> like that, that's how intense we were about it we had wheels of parmesan cheese that we were like breaking into chunks and then running through a grater. We did everything by hand. We would roast, we would get giant tubs of uh, pre-peeled garlic mm -hmm. and cloves. Um, did you have to pre-peel the garlic? No, they were already, they were already peeled. Okay. Like, there was like a giant tub. <laughs> That's good. But we would, you know, toss them in a little bit of olive oil and roast it in the oven. And we would make sure that we roasted it, you know, 1040, 10.30, 10.45. So at 11 o'clock when the restaurant opened, it was like, oh, man. Well, you smell that <laughs> yeah, for yeah. hours. Like, the place just just reeked of fresh basil and roasted garlic when you walked in at, like, 1030 or 11, right, when it opened. Like, it smelled good in that place. And, you know, we we, we had – it was it. it. was It was basil. It was Parmesan cheese. It was olive oil. And um, – you basically just made it by hand. Made everything from scratch and that sold all this stuff like as soon as possible or yeah. okay. I mean it was it was we would make a giant tub of probably about 30 or 40 liters of basil pesto sauce and then we would take that and we would take half of it and use that as a base one for a roasted artichoke um, pesto sauce one for a sundry tomato pesto sauce one for a chipotle okay. pesto sauce one for a cilantro pesto sauce, and then a sun-dried tomato, or I said, roast red pepper. Mm -hmm. So we had six different pesto-based sauces that we made from scratch. I mean, I was hand-slicing the <laughs> onions and the chipotle peppers um, to put in the chipotle pesto. Like, we like we made everything. It's, so basically, if I go to right, everything was based on pesto and... The name of the restaurant was Pesto. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, if you think about that, just having one ingredient that then produces different varieties of the, of the yeah. ingredient, it's, it's crazy. And it, it, it was, the, the basil was just magic because you would just get there. And, I, and then I got to the point where, you know, I was the general manager of it and I was in charge of training other people and they couldn't catch on to it. Maybe it was just because I had more experience with it. But I was the one also at that point receiving all of the produce orders and you would go through and make sure that all of your stuff was mm. fresh. There wasn't a bunch of, you know, beat up and bruised and mushy basil. Oh, yeah. you know, and you'd basically go through and say, hey, like 15, 20% of this is wrecked, man. You, like, you can't serve this. I need a credit for this amount of basil. And, you know, I'd call and I'd send pictures. And, you know, it was one of those things about saving money. If we got a bunch of rotten peppers, rotten tomatoes, Someone had to say something within a certain amount of time, or the you know delivery service figured it's all accepted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, and then the guy who ran the food for us in terms of when we had a problem, um, I forget his name, but I'll never forget. He, his son went to Ohio State 
and was in a band that I liked to go see when they were playing at local bars. <laughs> and he like brought over a thing of tomatoes for me one time. I walk him out the back door and I see that band sticker in his back window. I'm like, what the heck? I love that band. He's like, oh yeah, so-and-so, the guitarist is my son. So, you know. What kind of band was that? Uh, like a funky... Um, a funky country? <laughs> no, no. It was more like a, like a, like a combination of 311 and Red Hot Chili Peppers. Okay. And Sublime. They, they play a lot of... Kind of punk rock music? Punk rock. Um, kind of... Yeah. And they, they played a lot of cover songs from those three bands. Mm -hmm. So when they, they weren't playing their original music, they played cover oh, songs from them. And it was really... Yeah, they had a real nice like bass player that just played a lot of funky stuff. And so they had like bass solos. And, and sometimes it'd be a lot of singing. Sometimes they'd bring in... Mm. A guy who was doing rap music and rap cool. vocals, so it was very yeah. It was called Stretch Lefty. <laughs> it was the name of their band. A good name. <laughs> yeah, and it was we really liked them, and they were playing at house parties sometimes. They were playing at bars. So whenever we found out when they were playing, like we'd go find and watch. So it was pretty entertaining to meet somebody's dad. <laughs> and, I mean, also if you have uh, like punk rock music, you know, parties. It's, yeah, it's cool. Oh, it was. Yeah. It's crazy. When you had a party that had a live band at Ohio State, and yeah. it was impressive. So we, I mean, I bet in every university or you know, it's cool to have live music and mm -hmm. you know, home party, especially you know. Yeah, we had my my roommate was a musician, and there was a he was in a what, I don't know what to call other than it was a jam band, a jam band, a jam band. I don't know if that yeah. makes sense to you. I can't explain it any better other than like, like think the Grateful Dead. Like just the gender of the music. I don't even know. It was, <laughs> it was a jam band, um, but it was it was literally just they would play. I don't think they actually had songs. Like they would just play. Okay. So they it was just, just instruments. Just they, yeah, they would just play songs um, and make it up as they go. Almost every single time, I think they had a few like select songs that they did actually have. But it was just, they just called themselves a jam band and like a bunch of weed smoking. <laughs> oh yeah, these guys were always baked. But they even played in our basement a few times. Their their name their band's name was Jamin Brahmin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean they, these yeah, we they played at a uh, local bar on like once a week. You know, it was like the dollar beer night scene. We would, yeah. It was like a half mile walk, and we'd walk over there, have really cheap beers, and just listen to my buddy play harmonica for two hours. You know, just and I like those nights. Nice, you know, you go to the bar, you didn't even have to ask for the beer. You just say, "Yeah, the cheap one." Yeah. <laughs> At Ohio State, there was like a certain bars every night of the week that had like almost dollar beer nights. I love them. It was a, it was a, it was a bad influence, but it was a good time. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you know, I'm glad I grew out of it, but there's definitely opportunities for people to party a little too much and get distracted from the schoolwork. Yeah, distracted. Yeah, yeah, yeah distracted. <laughs> well, I'm gonna grab one of these. Yeah, no problem. And uh, if you like, if we're not, uh, when I ask you, I'll just shrug. <laughs> but so, the, like, um, since you have a lot of experience, like in the restaurant industry, yeah, did you? consciously choose to do that or uh, because you like it or, or just you found a, yourself in, in that kind of industry? I think that I the, the initial choice when I was 15 
because I've been to that restaurant several times to eat and I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And my parents both cooked a lot when I was a kid. Like the family meals were planned out for an entire week. My mom had cookbooks from both sides of the family. Mm -hmm. Um, because your mother's Polish? My, my dad is. Oh, your dad, dad is. is. My mom is Scottish and German. Oh, cool. Yeah, my yeah, and my Scottish side of the family came over, I want to say around like 1918, 1919, when my mm -hmm. great-grandma came over. Mm -hmm. I'm not certain when my great-grandparents from Germany came over, but it was, I think, post-World War One, pre-World War Two. Okay. And then my dad's side of the family is all post-World War Two. Late, late 40s, early 50s. And my grandpa or my Jaja, um, he came over by himself. Mm. None of his um, brothers or sisters came. So I still got family from his right, for scratch right. over there in Poland oh, that, okay. yeah, that, that are still over there um, that we keep in touch with. But my, my babcha, my grandma, she came over with her parents and all of her brothers and sisters, which was a big... You know, Polish Roman Catholic family. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they came over and and settled some in uh, Chicago, and some became dairy farmers north of Green Bay. And so there's you know a, a family cookbook from my great babcha, you know, with a bunch of Polish recipes, and then there's family recipes and church recipes from my mom's side of the family. Uh, so everything was was you know, some kind of home cooked meal when I was a kid and I started trying to learn it, started trying to catch up to it. And then my dad was always in charge of breakfasts on, on Saturdays and Sundays, you know, eggs, all the different ways, he, you know, make scrambled eggs with mushrooms and chives and over easy eggs and toast with that and bacon. And then he would make what we knew as crepes or nozhniki. Okay. Well, um, well, what is that? It's a crepe. But we, we call them nozhniki, Polish word. Like, uh, I was it made like uh, just eggs and, or is it any other ingredients? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crepe. So it's just a, like a real thin uh, batter, you know, eggs, flour, and milk. That's okay, very easy. Yeah. You know, it was, and it was, if you want it to be, you know, more eggy and more yellow, you just add extra eggs. But are there like different types of this, uh, what's the name of that? Nozhniki? Yeah, I'm sure there are. What we saw were just the ones he made with, I mean, it was literally a cup of flour, cup of milk, cup of flour, cup of milk, egg. Okay, so and he just, just kind of, he eyeballed it. traditional way. Yeah, he eyeballed it, would just keep whipping it up, and then he'd, he'd pour it, you know, mm -hmm. real thin. There's no, you know, leavening agent, no, oh, yeah, nothing yeah. that made it like, you know, like, I think pancakes have baking soda or baking. Yeah, yeah, they have, yeah. yeah they, this had nothing, nothing. So it was all just, you know, flat, mm -hmm. flat, flat. And he called them pancakes or nozhniki. You know, so we were, that's what we knew. And then when we were old enough to go out and order pancakes, we were super disappointed because we got these <laughs> fluffy pancakes. Like, yeah, this isn't what dad makes. <laughs> but we, you know, we would get those and, you know, when we were younger, it was just put as much maple syrup on there as you can and just eat them. And he would sit there and get homemade applesauce mm -hmm. and put it down there and roll it up and eat it, you know, in a, in a nice little neat rolled up crepe, and he would just cut it chunk by chunk, full of applesauce, and eat that. I mean, it looks tasty. It was, and then that became how we started doing it, and we started putting other types of homemade jams inside of the blueberry jam, strawberry jam. Mm -hmm. 
when I was older, you know, because I learned how to do that from scratch myself, I started adding, uh, I would make um, a wine and berry reduction okay. and mix that with whipped cream or with a whipped cheese, cream cheese mm -hmm. and kind of put it in a piping bag and almost make like a cannoli. Oh, oven. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Only with a crepe. Okay. And, you and said wineberry? It was, I took um, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, strawberries, red wine, sugar, water, and wow. just reduced it until, you know, I got it either to, it was before it became a, a jammy consistency. It was more runny. Okay. A, a very, you know, a sauce. So even more liquid. Yeah, it was, it was a bit of a sauce. And then I would take that with, you know, whipped cream and whip it together to flavor that. Mm. Or I would take whipped cream cheese or um, ricotta. Ricotta? Yeah, ricotta cheese. Ricotta? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some dozen things. Yeah. One of those cheeses that accepts both a sweet or a savory profile. Mm -hmm. yeah. You can't take Parmesan and do that. There's too much salt in there. Um, but you could take ricotta. How do you pronounce it? Yeah, ricotta. Yeah. Ricotta, yeah. And you could mix that with a sweet, you know, wine berry reduction and then we it'd be okay inside of a crepe and then mm. fill it. And so that's what I would do with some powdered sugar and then put some berry sauce on top. That became like a go-to dessert when I was trying to cook and impress people. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But now you've become a wolf, so you, you don't even wonder, uh, why should I do that? I, I, I've made the wine reduction a few times for Allie. We mostly put it on vanilla ice cream because it's, it's just it's so a good. really good accompaniment yeah. for that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, vanilla ice cream is good with everything. Yes, it is. <laughs> so I think the, the initial, when I, when I was offered a job at a restaurant at 15, it was like, I like cooking. I think I like cooking a lot. I'm going to go work at a restaurant because A, I want to have a job mm -hmm. and B, I want to learn to cook better. So that just kind of lined up and it just it carried me through all the way. I mean, it, when the, when the Italian restaurant um, closed down, I had about six more months left in college. Hmm. I got a job at Hooters. I fried wings. I went from a very good salary in 2007. You know, I was making um, enough in one week to cover my entire month's rent plus groceries. Because rent at that point was $333 a month. I was renting a house with two other guys and we may or may not had a, a couple extra people staying with us who weren't on the leash mm -hmm. or on the lease, excuse me. And uh, <laughs> so they were paying us under the table too. So that was even cheaper. <laughs> and, and so, you know, that was able. And then the restaurant closed down and I went back to flipping wings for seven bucks an hour and, you know, mm -hmm. frying up and cooking up burgers and, Hooters, it was, it was a fun environment, you know, obviously, if you're familiar with Hooters in there, I mean, uh, the premise of it. Hooters has changed throughout the time. You yes, know. It, you know, it, luckily, but it, it was, <laughs> I'm not sure, man. I, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was like working with a bunch of younger and older sisters. Like, that's how I kind of. Yeah, I've heard that, um, like, Hooters management was paying for a, you know, surgery for them. Oh, for booze. I had never heard that. I do know there was a vending machine inside of the, the dry storage area where you kept all of the, you know, the 
ketchups and the mayonnaise and okay. for like pantyhose and shorts and shirts and stuff. Wow. So they were given a certain amount of clothing um, allowance or actual like clothing items when they were hired, but when they got worn out or when they got stained, they had to purchase their own. And there was actually a vending machine with those items. I mean, it's business, man. So they, you know, you would if you got like snag and ripped your pantyhose or whatever it was, you could go and put some money in a, in a vending machine, go into the restroom, have a fresh uniform item on, wow. basically within minutes. Um, and they made really good tips. So, you know, it, it, it was you know flipping wings and uh, frying burgers and. I mean, you wouldn't learn like as much as you would have done with the other restaurant. Yeah, you know, yeah. And then I had gone because when we closed, one of the former managers had gotten a job at Bob Evans, and another one had gotten a job at Hooters. Hmm. So when we closed down, I went and got an interview at Bob Evans, and they turned me down. <laughs> they said. We're not going to hire you because you're going to graduate in five, six months. And we know you're not going to work here after you graduate college. So what's the point? And Hooters is like, yeah, we don't care, man. Like, come on over, you know? Yeah, Maybe they have more money. I mean, I was honest during the interview. Like, yeah, I graduate. And at that point, I knew I was going towards the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. So I said, hey, I'm going to graduate and then eventually step away. And so as, as soon as you graduated, you, you not, started serving in the Army? Not, in the Marines? not, not exactly. Um, there was, at that point in time in 2008-2009, the Marine Corps was trying to grow. There was, they were about 100. You said 2008? Yeah, I graduated undergrad in 2008. Okay. And I didn't join the Marine Corps until January of 2009. So the, because the Marine Corps was trying to grow, they were accepting a high number of applications mm -hmm. and meant that a pipeline to get people into the training. Mm-hmm. Was, was crowded, so when you got accepted, you had to wait your turn. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I, I had to wait until January of 2009. So when I graduated in June of 08, I moved back to Cincinnati with my parents, got the job back at Ruby Tuesdays. Um, at that point, I was bartending and serving tables, and you know, any job that they needed, I filled. Other than being a manager, I could clock in as any job at that point. And they would, and, and in 2009, you were uh, how old of you? In 2009, when I joined, I was 23. 23. About to be 24. Because I joined in January. I commissioned as a lieutenant at 23 in March of 09. And then in the summer of 09, I turned 24. Wow. And then you got deployed right away? No. At that point, I, I was accepted with a medical waiver. Because I had a torn labrum and a torn rotator cuff in my shoulder <laughs> from playing rugby at Ohio State. Oh, wow. So I had to immediately turn around after about three or four months of them doing some tests, get reconstructive surgery, and mm -hmm. had pins put in my shoulder to prevent it from dislocating. But you also mentioned that you had a surgery in your knee? Also. I, I No surgery. Um, I've torn my left MCL twice. Oh, MCL. MCL, yeah. Wow. No ACL, just MCL. Well, MCL should be even tougher to recover. Uh, I, I didn't get surgery, so <laughs> I, tore, I tore it once in college as a as a freshman or as a first year. It was 
during a game, I forget who we were playing, but somebody fell on my left leg and it collapsed inwards. And I was in a immobilizer and I had crutches to stick around campus um, for a while. Yeah, that I had an, an ACL surgery Ooh. myself. Yeah. That's the worst. I can't imagine that. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I'm still, you know, I'm still feeling something unique. Oh, you always feel something. Yeah, you're not even the same as before. You know when the rain's gonna come. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how this. That's how this guy is. Um, yeah, this this was J- July of '09, and then I rehabbed for. I want to say about 10 months and then I was able to start training again. Mm. And then when I graduated the whole entire training pipeline in, and that included um, two different schools, the six month long, the basic school, which is a six month provisional infantry rifle okay. platoon commander. Okay. Of course, everybody, if you're an officer in the Marine Corps goes to this, whether you're going to be a pilot, a lawyer, an infantry guy, a combat engineer, anybody who has a ground contract doesn't know what their MOS is going to be yet. The only people that really know what they're going to do are the lawyers and the pilots. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is kind of competing for the 26 different jobs. At least at that point, there were 26 different options, things like ground supply, logistics, artillery, tanks, Amphibious assault vehicles, infantry, combat engineering, um, a bunch of different weird support roles for the air air wing, which I wanted to be as close to the action as possible because that's just as much. So I put infantry as my number one choice, combat engineering as my number two choice. I got combat engineering because they basically take you through the six-month curriculum all about being a platoon commander of a rifle platoon. So you're learning about all the different weapon systems in the Marine Corps, from tanks to um, mortars to artillery to you know air airframes and stuff like that. And you have all these tests and all these physical fitness mm-hmm. exams and these you know skill exams like land nav, land navigation mm-hmm. uh, with compass and you know they have a giant they throw you on a giant um, plot of land with a bunch of boxes on metal stakes. These boxes are painted bright red and have, you know, codes on them. Oh, yeah. And they basically give you a grid coordinate where this box is supposed to be located. Okay. And you have to find a plot of a point on the map that you know you're at. You know, Just a, certain, a, certain, or yeah, a certain crossroad or a certain, you know, a certain stream or something where you can walk there and you say, I know I'm here. And this box, according to the map, is 800 meters this way. And, you know, the map is flat and not, you know, mm. so you have to take, you know, the declination diagram. Mm. And basically, you take the map's degree and you convert it to a compass degree. Yeah. You turn yourself to that. You walk 800 meters. You find the box. You write that, okay, this box is A, B, C. And you go and you give it to somebody and they grade it and say, okay, yeah, you found the right box or no, you're wrong. You know, they... So this is just one of many different tests, and they basically give you a GPA. Okay. And they do a quality spread where it's like, you know, you break it into thirds, the mm-hmm. top third, middle third, lower third. And then they take that and they say, okay, 
The top people in the top third, what's their first choice? Okay, you get it. The top people in the next third, what's their top choice? So they do, you know, a quality spread across all the different jobs that you can get. So that, you know, if there's the 40 top people are all saying, I want infantry. Well, then boom, you've given possibly the 40 best officers to one MOS. Mm -hmm. And you've given a lower tier person, possibly. This is just based off of a six month course. People could develop in all sorts of different speeds. So it's more of a, you know, hedging the bets that mm -hmm. you're going to have different people grow in different rates amongst these um, different GPAs from this one school. And they do a quality spread. So each MOS gets a, a spread of these different. But, um, uh, like you are able in any case to to fall in, into one of those three categories or you can re be rejected from them? Well, you're, it's just you, know, you take, you start with 300 people. Some people get injured. Some people mm -hmm. get basically get fired and say, hey, like you're not going to cut this. Like You need to get out of the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. kind of thing and then of that you know there's like from our grade there's 300 people started 272 people graduated from that i want to say you know just 70 or 80 people are pilots so there's 200 people left and then there's you know 10 or 15 lawyers so then there's 180 people that are ground contracts and they take those and they say okay this 60 is the top this next 60 is the middle and this next 60 is the bottom and they'll take Mm -hmm. people from each third into one MOS. So they'll take infantry and say, we need 40 people there. All right, so we're going to take some from the top, put it over there, some mm -hmm. from the middle, put it there, and yeah. some from the bottom, put it over there. And then they're going to, okay, logistics, we need this many people. Some from the top, some from the middle, and some from the bottom. That way, you know, that logistics field has a very wide variety of different skill sets, mm -hmm. different, you know, but it's all people who presumably wanted to be there at some capacity. Mm -hmm. And then it's all right, hey, now you go on to your MLS, you go to your logistics training, another you know three or four months of, this is how you be a logistics officer, or this is how you be an infantry officer. And then at that point, once you're done there, then you go to the actual military where you are deployed in charge of somebody oh, okay. as an officer, and then possibly you're deployed. Mm -hmm. It's not a guarantee. Um, but I know that like, like there is a huge difference between what I see in Italy and here. Like you get deployed right away. Like there is oh, a lot yeah. of young people there. There are a lot of people going over. Um, and then it's why we were growing back in 2008 and 2009 was at that point, President Obama had decided, okay, we're going to take some troops out of Iraq mm -hmm. and put more troops in Afghanistan. Um, because it, we we thought we'd done enough in Iraq at that point to to leave. You know, uh, you know, that's a different conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, that, I mean that that vacuum was filled by a fairly nefarious organization that has run rampant across Iraq and yeah. uh, Syria. Still doing it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's gonna it's gonna happen the same thing now that you're going away from Afghanistan. You know the Taliban's but uh, I know you I know <laughs> it's a different topic it, it there there has to be a stopping point for conflict we can't yeah but it, like yeah. Some, somebody else is gonna fill the gap oh yeah I mean 
nature abhors a vacuum. Yeah. So now that we're leaving, I, I doubt that the people trying to take power have all the same goals for Afghanistan as what we did with, yeah. you know, the Afghan government that we assisted in in providing stability for them while they grew. And um, but if you talk to the Afghan people, they're not Afghans; they're whatever tribe they are. Yeah, they they don't. We were down in the Helmand province. Those people aren't going. Yeah, you know, Kabul, however many hundreds of miles away. Like mm. it's great that they're. That's also why I think it's very hard to export democracy as we know it in the West. Yeah, because then, like, it wouldn't work there. I mean, it's not a, that type of democratic society yeah. may not be the cultural norm there. Which, yeah, you know, we're hopeful that you know we they can see maybe there's some great things to glean from democracy and they can adopt some of those things. But you can't just take a government and wipe it out and then put mm -hmm. in your form and say this is the best follow yeah. it i mean it's got to be some organic growth within that country and for the most part that's what we were doing you're just kind of we were there to provide stability and you know security while the government itself grew and, and developed its own processes mm -hmm. and, you know there were some advisors from all sorts of different countries there to help the military the police and the government itself um develop But again, it's a different speed, it's a different nation. So. I mean, in general, it's just a slow process. Oh, it's definitely a slow process. Also, you know, there is one thing I, I don't get. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if, if like the US government does that or not, but investing like in schools there, because, you know, everything is should, yeah. like the process of changing the societies should be based on, uh, on the cultural change. Yeah. And, Meaning also education in, in the sense. I'm, I don't know if the yeah. if the U.S. does that, but the... I'm not. Sure. I did not see it. Didn't mean it didn't happen. I'm sure there was some. I saw a lot of infrastructure help, mm. paving of roads okay. so that goods can move. I mean, the only paved roads in the Helmand Province mm -hmm. are ones that the Americans did. Okay, or their or our allies. So still something. I mean. it, it was some, yeah, and I'm sure there was. And there might not have been schools where we were operating because it was still the Wild West. Mm -hmm. There might have been more schools near the capital, near where, you know, larger city centers were. But where we were, it was open desert. I, we mm -hmm. were at a place called Leatherneck. It was the major base. And it was literally just a plot in the middle of a, a crappy desert. Um, mm -hmm. To the south was Marja, which if it weren't for all the canals that had been built down there, probably would have been the same we had to drive through a desert if we didn't want to take the one road mm -hmm. which took us you know however many miles east and then another road uh, back south to get to Marja we had to cut through an open desert in that place you never knew what the conditions were going to be like yeah was, and we were driving extremely heavy vehicles so if there's any type of rain mm -hmm. we, our, our vehicles had yeah you know, it's very difficult there 30 40 ton vehicles you know, even bigger when they were hauling because my platoon built roads or built bridges mm -hmm. and sometimes we helped improve roads so we were bringing heavy equipment with us everywhere we went we were bringing large steel i-beams in the back of logistics vehicles on trailers so everywhere we went we were heavy we were very heavy 
And we always would say like the, the heaviest vehicle set the pace of the convoy. Yeah, obviously, yeah. You know, we're in open desert. The smaller gun trucks could speed along just fine, but those big guys, you know, you're running a lot of stress and it was always terrible conditions out there. Yeah. So uh, we did not see, a lot. I did not see anybody building schools and things like that, but I don't think, I think the road improvements were just as important to help because if you can't get goods to an area because you, all your trucks are breaking down because they're, mm -hmm. it's just, yeah. And, and a lot of stuff, and another reason why we focused <clears throat> on roads, at least in that area, I think was a lot of goods to support the allied effort there were coming in via convoys through Pakistan. And we would bring in ships full of the food and everything mm -hmm. like that. And then there'd be convoys to the Pakistan-Afghan border. And there was an army uh, security for third country nationals. I don't know who was driving the trucks, but it would, you'd see these giant convoys of 80, 90, we call them jingle trucks. You look them up, they're hilarious. They type an Afghan jingle truck. They would bedazzle these things like I've never seen, and they're just really ornate semi trucks. I mean, it they was like yeah. curious, you know. No, they were they were hilarious, um, and you would see some really, you know, OSHA would have a nightmare over there in terms of safety. I mean, you'd see a tanker with two cars strapped on top of the gas tank, just driving along. <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> um, Your jingle trucks. Yeah, yeah, jingle truck Afghanistan. There, yeah, it's down there. Oh, oh yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is a, that was a daily, you would see those things on the daily by the hundreds. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, it just floored me to see those things. I mean, just, <laughs> you'd see things like, it'd be old car tires stacked, you know, 50, 60 high, like, and just like twine, just strapping them all down, like bound by you know thousands of yards of twine. You're just like, what in the heck? Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, that was, I mean, those type of convoys where you'd see army trucks providing security for all of these giant tr like jingle trucks just convoying to our bases to mm -hmm. drop off cases and pallets of water because not everything was flown in, that would have been too expensive. So, a lot of it was from the I forget what port it was in Pakistan, but you'd see these giant convoys and just driving over to the base. And then from there, that major base, we would then, you know, through different means, get the food and water mm -hmm. to all the different infantry units that were in different areas. Um, and then at those infantry bases in those different areas in, in the Helmand province, my battalion had, you know, young Marines there, that were their generator mechanics and their electricians and their, uh, I forget the technical term, but we called them water dogs, 1171s, and <laughs> that made sure that their laundry services were working, that made sure their showers were working, that made sure water, you know. Water dogs. Yeah, yeah they, they, they water dogs. Yeah, they, they ran, they made sure that there was enough water to provide cooking, you know, water, water to cook with, water to mm -hmm. do your laundry with, water to shower with, which at a place like that, I mean, those, that was austere. Like you were only allowed to shower a certain number of times a week. Um, I mean, we had 
certain restrictions too at our larger base where it was, and it was always, you couldn't drink the water from the faucet at our base. You could brush your teeth with it, but you had to wet your toothbrush, brush okay. your teeth. Yeah, yeah. And in the same way when you're shaving, you, you'd shave, rinse your thing, and go back to shaving. I, I still do that now. Yeah. I don't shave in the shower. I'm shaving, I'm like, okay, get my razor full of, you know, hair and, and shh, all right, turn the water off. And in general, is a good habit. Yeah, and not a habit that I picked up until the military, because then I was just like, I don't let it run. And <laughs> I really didn't need to shave at 23 years old. I was still yeah. doing it every day. Now, finally, you know, in my mid-30s, I'm like, okay, now I feel like I can grow a beard confidence. <laughs> Nothing that majestic. But you know, oh, majestic. Oh yeah, I'm envious of that. I can't get that thick. Okay, <laughs> I mean it's it's all it's still all blonde. So I've like grown it. I've grown it's it good. out. It's good, blonde, blonde bird. I've grown it out once or twice, and my girlfriend's just been like, "No, that's terrible. Stop. You should try just mustache now." <laughs> yeah, I need to get I need to get better at beard care if I want to do it in terms of like getting yeah. brush and cream or whatnot. So, yeah, actually, I have that kind of problem as well. I mean, like like here, this, yeah, this place is yeah, it's kind of irritating. Yeah, I think you got to get some kind of, almost looks like a, like a shoe brush. Shoe brush. There, it looks like that. I don't know what it is, but there's like all sorts of beard care out there. But you see guys that actually, like, and you comb it every day to make it grow in one direction. Like, you, Oh, really? Yeah. That way you, it's, you're not getting a lot of ingrown hairs when you're at that stage. Mm. And that's my problem is I have a lot of ingrown hairs and I'm like, just, just, yeah, just shave. But I saw every day I shave for work and then on Friday I shave for the last time until Monday morning, so I give my face a break every weekend. So yeah. I've got a nice five o'clock shadow by Monday morning. But you're not you're not still in the in the Marine Corps. Uh, okay. Twenty eighteen, I got out. Because mm. I always seen you, you know, shaved, well shaved, always. Yeah. Oh, it, it. When I got out, I got a job at Kroger because it was. All right, Matt. What are you good at? The food industry well that's kroger right okay and kroger as a in, as a company mm -hmm. now that it's you know nationwide is still headquartered in cincinnati so i'm like okay and that's actually how i got the interview was my dad you know guy who lives across the street from my parents or used to live across the, like worked for kroger and my dad mentioned that i was getting out and, and thinking about um, Kroger is it? and they, the guy asked for my resume and I sent it along he got he gave me a call a few weeks later and said yeah like I feel confident in passing your name along to the Virginia Beach area leadership you know and saying hey this is somebody you might want to interview yourself and so I you know got that call and did a few interviews and got hired and do you were already living here right well of sorts um, I was here as an active duty Marine from 2013 to 2016. Mm -hmm. And when I got back from Afghanistan in 2016, I moved down to North Carolina. Okay. But at that point, Allie had bought a house in Norfolk mm -hmm. and was staying put. And so I went down to... North Carolina to the, the second combat engineer battalion down there. Worked Monday through Friday, 
got in my car Friday afternoon, drove up here, mm. hung out with her for 48 hours, got in my car Sunday night, and drove back to work. And I did that for two years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, cheers community. <laughs> I was, but I was used to being in vehicles for a very long time. You know, the monotony of driving was not boring anymore to me. Like, you know, I used that time, I'd call my parents, I'd call my sisters. I call my cousins. Well, especially if you're used to the desert. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I got my second tour. I was able to actually be allowed to drive because it was an advisor tour. Mm -hmm. We had a very small team of Marines that advised the Georgian infantry. And so when we would go out with the Georgians and patrol around Bagram, we would rotate jobs in order to, you know, keep fresh. I, I, could, I couldn't walk around every single day, neither could the other Marines. So sometimes I would drive and somebody else would take charge of walking with the Georgian and, and serving as a uh, advisor on those patrols and also as a secondary form of communication back to the main base there. I'd say 80% of the time I was the one walking around in the villages, but the rest of the time it was, um, Sergeant Smith, good kid, hilarious. Um, and then I would drive, or sometimes I'd get in the uh, gun turret and actually just run the communications because at that point I would be hooked into the vehicle's radio. Mm -hmm. So I could talk and use the vehicle's um, power to amplify the radio to be able to talk back to the base because we were only ever a couple kilometers away. Mm -hmm. And I could also talk to Sergeant Smith and the, the other uh, team, the rest of the team, um, as they walked around with the Georgians and doing the patrols through the villages. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I was able to drive these giant, you know, 40, 50 ton vehicles. How do you feel about it? I was fun. Um, it was powerful. It was scary uh, sometimes because there's a lot of canals, very deep mm -hmm. canals. So the roads were narrow, always made of dirt or gravel. And so when you're driving on one of these things at night, with you know, oh, yeah. no lights on, you got an MBG, you've got a giant ditch to your right, and you've got a wall to your left that you can't run into, so you have to be very straight and very alert. Um, but I think the tools allow you to be very, very like um, precise in, in doing the moves you make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were able to train a little bit to that in California before we went over. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we sat in Georgia with them for five months. We weren't driving their vehicles, but we, were, we had one of our own to drive. And so we were able to take turns and, and, and practice being in a convoy with the Georgians in our own vehicle. Um, so it was, we were ready for it. I mean, it was, man, was it fun. Like it, it's not something when they, when you're doing your normal everyday job as an officer, it's, it's a it's a very large or very big joke for the Marines to say, hey, sir, like, don't touch the equipment. You're going to break it. <laughs> I guess that's not your job, sir. Like, go lead people. Go do something. Like, it was, you know, one of the, the many jokes that you would have towards an officer of just, you know, you're not, you weren't trained on this piece of gear, so don't touch it because you're going to break it. You're 23. What do you know anyway? <laughs> you know? And you're just sitting there like, yeah, you're kind of right. But I Okay. And that was one of the fun challenges, like when you when you got to the military, like the actual fleet, and not just the training pipeline. Like you were, you know, everyone that I was in charge of, a vast majority of them were either older than me mm -hmm. or right about my age. 
You know, there were some that were younger than me as well, but I was not anywhere near the oldest person on the team. Like, and there were a lot of guys, you know, there was one woman, my first tour, I was a first lieutenant, O2, second level pay grade. Okay. Um, and at that point when I was in Afghanistan, I was, it was 2011, 2012, so I would have been 26. Um, she was a E3, which is a Lance Corporal. In, so that's an enlisted side rank. So, so is it higher? No, it's, it's, it's a lower rank. Okay. It's, so on the enlisted side, uh, it goes from E1 to E9 is the highest. Okay. On the officer side, it goes from O1 to O10. Okay. O10 being a four-star general. Okay. O1 being a second lieutenant and first lieutenant. So the officer side, the commission side is, you know, the, the, the leadership for whatever size unit you've got. Um, uh, looks like you got low battery. Yeah. Talking with you, sir. Yeah. Uh, I told you, just don't take a, uh, a bit like an interview because yeah, it's a conversation. Yes. Life's been fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've had, I've made sure that I was never bored. Yeah. That's, I mean, th that's how you should take life, otherwise, it's going to be very boring. You just get depressed and say, oh, you know, what is it? Just a series of problems? Yeah. And it, I think one of the best things I did was, you know, when I, like, I went to a tiny high school with like 119 people I graduated with. So I knew all those people from when I was like five or six years old. Mm -hmm. And when it came time to pick, Colleges. I, I picked one that was relatively close to the house, about an hour and a half away, but was a, was just a monster. Just a giant school. Ohio State, I think, is the second largest per you know per capita mm -hmm. university in all of the United States. I think Texas is the second. It was the first biggest, and then then it's Ohio State in terms of just sheer population on campus. That's a student. So I went to a place where I knew I could be completely anonymous and just be exposed to all sorts of different, you know, types of people and, and schools of thought. And I knew that I wanted to find that challenge of, of being, I guess, a little uncomfortable and not being in that same environment. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I definitely, definitely got to experience a lot of different, I don't know, people, cultures, thought processes at, at Ohio State. And, you know, just with that restaurant and the, um, the chance to be a leader at, at 21, 22 years old, because I went from seven bucks an hour as a line cook to eight bucks an hour as a shift leader. Mm -hmm. And then I was like assistant or general manager at that point for, you know, for the next like eight, nine months before the place closed down. And, uh, I really enjoyed that. We had 15 people that were on staff there. A majority of them were students. And all from, from different backgrounds. All from, yeah, like, all from different backgrounds. Um, there was one guy, his name was Zach Richardson. He had um, skull and crossbone tattoos on his wrists, but the, the crossbones were like a knife and a whisk. 
you know, he was he loved cooking. Okay, yeah, it was man. It was like, and the the skull was wearing like a chef's hat or something. Like, he, he loved cooking. Um, hey guys, he he was yeah, yeah, he was a really good dude. Um, there was Matt Saunders. Um, I don't think he was a student, but I mean, this dude was a wild guy, I and mean, he had he had his arm tattoos that made him look like a G.I. Joe. You know, like the hinge yeah, right there yeah. on G.I. Joe's? Yeah, yeah. He got a tattoo on both arms. He had like... Why? I don't know. I mean, it was his thing. Um, he had a lot of a lot of piercings. I didn't care. It was just, it was very interesting. He always listened to what I called snake death metal. I have no idea. It's not really a thing. I just made it up. But it's like, that screaming rock music. Like, oh, okay, okay. That's what he listened to when he was making the pesto sauce or when he was chopping up veggies. <laughs> and he was listening to this angry music. And I'm like, holy shit, man. Like, that's angry. He's like, I like it. It's okay. Like, All right, man. Because when I comes out better. I would go in there at like five or six in the morning and I'd put on some peaceful music. Like some, <laughs> some, some Jack Johnson, some Noah oh, yeah. Jones. And I'd just be like, oh, yeah. And I was working quickly, but it was, like, it was very relaxing. But then when, you know, when we were cooking or when the restaurant was busy and Matt was in the back running, like he was doing the dishes or any food prep, I'd have to go back and be like, hey man, like turn down your music. Like, we can't hear. Yeah. It's too screaming. It's too loud. But he, he was wild. You know, he, and he walked to work every day, like two or three miles, you know, and he would always wear like these giant like military boots, like huge heels. And so he's all, he looked way taller than he really was because he was wearing like four inch platforms at work. Oh man, it was crazy. I mean, he's a really nice kid, really nice guy. Um, it was it was just good to meet all these different people. And like my my roommate Dan, I knew that guy for three years, and I still keep in touch with him. He's still in New York. He's no longer an actor. He's a real estate broker. he's probably making more money with that. Probably is. I know he is. He's doing he's doing well. He's doing good. Um, he was, and that was like the you know. I mean, it all started my freshman year when I had a very diverse mm-hmm. crew of people that I walked into. Like uh, my freshman year was very, very diverse roommates. That's good. I mean, and it was kind of like yeah, like you're saying you, you, you can expand your your mind to you know, yes. the way you think. Yeah, and I, I didn't like high school. Like, it was it just seemed. <clears throat> canned i don't feel if that expression makes canned? sense canned like it was just like prepared like it's just you know, oh, okay like it was you just had to hit hit the steps like it was just it was yeah okay yeah you, you have to do this you have to do xyz do... like there's the cool kids there's the uncool kids there's these types like it was a very okay like it was it was yeah, not yeah, a okay. you, you weren't going to change the system there were, you weren't going to you you had a place in it and you just went through four years and you got done with it. And that's what it was. And I wasn't part of the cool kid group. I wasn't part of the uncooked cool group. I was just kind of like friends with everybody and just thought it was kind of nonsense. You were the joker. I was, like, I was like, this is nonsense that, you know, you can bully people and make fun of them for being different. You know, I tried to be a cool kid, but I was friends with all these guys and they made fun of me and they made fun of them. And I'm like, man, this is all just... I mean, it's I don't want to work this hard to fit in anywhere. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, I don't care. And that was one of the things. Like, I'll go to Ohio State, and I'll be free. I can just make friends with everybody, mm-hmm. and it won't matter because it's it's all about just being a student and being 
I joined the rugby team there and met a lot of friends there and had the restaurant, you know, so I had a, a big group of friends from all different places. And that was kind of like, the, I was like, okay. And at that point, even then, at 21, 22, graduating from college, the only place I'd ever been outside of the United States and visiting family was Canada to go fishing with my family. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, of course. A hell of a time. <laughs> Loved it. Like, it was lake, it's called Lake Sessagonville, Lake of the Big Rocks. And we went every summer with my dad, my uncle, my younger cousins, and then any other random family members that could join us. And it was like three or four days just sitting on a remote lake that was a flying cabin mm -hmm. with, your, with your family. And like we had to catch walleye in the morning and fry it up at lunch and eat, and then you go back to the cabin for dinner. Um, and it's the only place I'd ever been outside of the United States. So I was like, okay, I, I need to do something else. Like I need, I want to do the military because that's, I'm going to get to travel. I'm going to get this and that. And then one of the things you're doing during that, that school, the, that the basic school, is mm -hmm. you're kind of telling the Marine Corps the geographic areas you'd, you'd prefer to go to. I don't think they really care. They're going to send you wherever they want, but they're going to do their best to try and mm -hmm. put you where you want to go so that you'd be more likely to succeed there. You know, one of my friends, she got put down at Yuma, Arizona in the desert. Okay. <laughs> Wasn't a very big fan of that. Me, I put overseas as my first duty station. I'm like, yeah, I'll go. I'm 25, 26. I'm single. Throw me somewhere crazy, please. And they're like, okay, you're going to go to Japan. Man, it was a hell of a time. Every day you got off work and you left base and you were in a foreign country. And you were just figuring it out. Like we were going into restaurants with no English, no pictures, and just pointing at words saying, I'll have one, ichi, ichi. Ichi. So you didn't learn a, a little bit of Japanese? Um, Skoshi. <laughs> uh, yeah, enough. At that point, I was, they, a lot of locals spoke enough English to understand you. And I was, I knew enough Japanese to be polite. Okay. And, and kind. That's good enough. Yeah. I mean, there, and it, so for the first few months, it was just, you know, training every day, go to Afghanistan, get off base and just go eat somewhere that it, you didn't know what you were going to have. Like, it could be good, could be terrible, but you're going to eat it anyway. Mm -hmm. But you just went, and my buddies and I would just explore the island. It was a good time. Then I went to Afghanistan, and when I got back, I'm like, okay, like, I got back, I'm healthy. Like, what am I going to do now to, to continue you know, learning about the Japanese culture or whatever? So I joined a Japanese rugby team. And so Tuesdays and Thursday nights... I was going to practice and because it's so hot during the day there, practice started at like 8 p.m. and would run until like 10 p.m. And it was all under the lights mm -hmm. at, at different places. And so um, there was barely in English. There was a couple guys on the team that, that knew English. Uh, one guy, his name was Ben. His dad was a retired Marine and had stayed in Japan with his wife, who was of Japanese descent, and raised their sons, Ben, and then he had a little brother, I forget his name, but both played um, on the team. And then now Ben's actually a professional rugby player in the Japanese Major League Rugby. And mm. it's super, I forget, I think it's called the Japanese Super League. But yeah, I, I see updates from my uh, chat group that I'm still with them, okay. like him as a professional. He's right around my age, so I'm sure he's getting close to retirement. But he still plays professional rugby over there. Um, 
And there was another guy, uh, his name was Miyuji, and I think his grandfather was an American. And so he spoke very good English and he was around a lot. He was actually my interpreter for the most part, <laughs> but he was a, he was like just a, you know, big dude. Um, he was a brick house. I mean, he, he was just a squat, like muscular kid. Just a wardrobe. And he was fast as hell for being as thick and muscular as he was. Like he, he was hard to tackle because you couldn't get your arms around the kid. Um, so those two guys were usually the translators for me. Everybody else spoke enough broken English to make up for my terrible mm. Japanese. <laughs> but I was able to go um, to mainland for tournaments with them a couple times. Wild stories in terms of just sheer culture shock. The Japanese bathhouses. Bathhouses? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so we would go. We would fly on a Saturday afternoon and basically check in the evening time to a hotel. Mm -hmm. Sleep, wake up, eat breakfast, check out of the hotel, and then go play rugby. Okay. So here you are in mainland Sunday afternoon, and you got a flight in about six hours to go back to Okinawa so I could be to work on Monday. And we would go to a bathhouse to clean up after the game. And you, like, you go in there and you pay a fee and I'm sure this exists in other countries, and I've never seen it in the States. Um, but, you know, the men go in one area and women go in another. But you walk into this, in your changing room, and you put your stuff in a locker, and you get these flip-flops. And you go into this bath, this bathing area in the buff, completely naked. And it's hundreds of Japanese guys in a bathhouse. There's a hot pool, a cold pool. <laughs> like, without even a towel? No, there's towels to pick up after you're done. Okay, so you have to say the old time make it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At and least now, you know. And, well, and then you could grab a towel after you were done, and like there were different stalls, you know, like with a stool there, and that's where you went, and you you would like you had like dispensers for soap and mm -hmm. shampoo and stuff, and you you go in, and this stool with this weird you know hose and this this where you're getting. I didn't understand it. I'm sitting there like, how do I make the water turn on? <laughs> and, you know, what's this bucket for? And then two of my teammates, like, come and, like, okay, Mato, like, Malto, we help. And they show me how to, like, work the water nozzles and get everything. Like, how you want hot water? Okay, here's how you do it. Mm -hmm. and use this to, you know, and basically, like, getting taught how to bathe by two teammates while and I'm sitting like, oh man, everyone's naked. This is weird. But, you know, it was normal. Yeah. I mean, it was like, everyone's just having a normal conversation. Like, oh, no, no, yeah. no. And the weirdest part for me was there were like 60, 70 year old women fully clothed walking around as like the dirty towel people, ladies. I don't know what, like, if there were dirty towels, they were picking them up and put them in a bed and like pushing them around, like taking care of like the dirty laundry. Mm -hmm. And then there were, like, scores of young kids, probably, like, 9, 10 years old, of both male and female gender, naked, running around, playing the whole time, too. And, it was, and no one was bothered by it. Like, it wasn't like it was a... It was normal. And I'm just sitting there going, what is going on? And then I just showed up to the place, and I didn't know what to expect. I'm like, okay, this is how we're going to get clean before we get on the plane. And I'm like, well... Okay, when in Rome, let's do this. <laughs> and it was just wild. 
and, you know, then, you know, you get done bathing and you grab a towel and you walk in the locker room, you get dressed and you meet outside. And so we basically had, okay, like we'll be in there for 30 minutes. And so everyone got done and we walked back and got on the, on the bus that we had rented and went to the airport. And we did that. I did that at least twice. That's cool. Man. Yeah, I was like, it was, at least now that I, if I'm going to go to Japan, at least I know I have to do that. Yeah, yeah. And I would, it is a, like, you're just sitting there going, what in the world? Because <laughs> it, 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 it's still, you know, to this day, I'm still, I still have to tell the story. It's just like an out-of-body experience. Yeah. Like, wow, this is weird. But I, I get it. Like, it's just normal for them. It wasn't, un, it wasn't weird. It was interesting at, at the uh, front door or as you walk into the lobby, mm-hmm. it said no tattoos allowed. And they were like, tattoos? Yeah, you weren't allowed to have tattoos. <laughs> what if you have one? I have two of them. And Muji basically turns to me and goes, don't worry, it's okay. You know, and then several of the teammates also had tattoos. Um, I don't know why, but it was a, there was a sign that said, if you have tattoos, you're not allowed. But I mean, we walk in there, several people had tattoos. It just didn't seem to be a big deal. But I think there's something in the Japanese culture where certain subcultures are very into tattoos. Maybe the, the Yakuza or something. I, no, okay. I don't know. I understand. I mean, this is a guess. But, you know, there, there, there's a certain assumption about people with tattoos over there that may be different than American people. Granted, there are certain assumptions that mm. I think a lot of Americans make about people with tattoos. Who knows? Who knows? But I mean, I saw them. Like, Am I gonna be allowed in here? And they're like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll be fine. Don't worry. Because both of mine are, you know, very small and they're military related. So mm. whatever. So yeah, that was a good time. It's just been weird. But I mean, I played in at least five or six different tournaments with them and a bunch of different games all every weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a couple birthday parties of some of the, the teammates, families, events. New Year's party, mm. and I ate um, ate some kind of soup like a with a pig shank, like yeah, like taking yeah, yeah. Uh, pork chops and like picking out the meat of a of a you know pork shank. And I'm like, man, this is weird. Okay, like we're doing it. I never done it before. I don't think I've done it since then. But you know, just yeah, those were the kind of things that I went out looking for and I found. And man, I love that team. It was a really really good group of guys. They didn't give two hoots about how terrible my Japanese was. They were just very happy to see me and very they're very kind at every moment. Um, at one point, one of the team, one of the opponents called me uh, uh, a curse word, and they they defended me. <laughs> well, the, the guy, had, you know, the rules of rugby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So he had, he had purposely. I was trying to chase one of his teammates down that had gone past us and gotten through our line, and he crossed over and he like stopped. He basically trying to block mm-hmm. me, and you know me being a lot larger human being than he was, literally just threw him, like just grabbed, threw, and then went and tackled this guy. And he came up and was screaming at me, calling basically like "f you, American." Okay. And I started repeating him, like you know I didn't understand what he was saying. <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> my teammates like come like, oh no, Mato. I'm like, no, no, like come on. Like, calm down, calm down, it's okay. I'm like, ah oh, no. And they're like, no, let's go. You know, and then and at that point, like I'd only been in the game for like ten or fifteen minutes because that was my like first or second game. And so they put me in for like the last twenty minutes because I don't think they actually knew 
how good or bad I mm-hmm. was. Like they could see me being an athlete at practice, but not speaking the language and then be putting in yeah, a yeah. teammate, different things. So they, they put me in slowly and they realized that I was pretty decent. So they, you know, they let me play more than I probably deserve just got out because of the kindness or whatnot, but man, they were good guys. And then uh, when I moved to Virginia beach, one of the guys and I stayed in touch for a little while, his name was Maury. He sent me this like handmade coffee mug that I still have. And you know, yeah, really nice guys. Really. Did, did he make it? I, I don't know if he made it or if he, he knew somebody, but it was definitely, I've never seen anything like it. Stayed inside. Cool. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's cool. It was very plain. Which I really like. It's just this plain, plain gray, about brown, but it's got this really cool texture to it that I can't mm-hmm. really explain very well in person. But it's just, I, I'm like, yeah, this is a cool mug, and I have it. And so I'm always reminded of him and, and the team. And I've got still a, an app on my phone that allows me to see updates, and they still all go and party and very good rugby. Oh yeah, you can tell it's still very. And that was one of the things I really enjoyed about rugby in high school and in college was the camaraderie of the sport was more intense than like a soccer mm-hmm. or, or football, even in American football, which I never played. Um, and I played soccer my entire life and the teams were close and we were friends, but then I played rugby and I was like, we're brothers mm-hmm. almost immediately. It didn't matter. Like we were brothers. Yeah. I heard this, this quotation. I don't know where it's from, but uh, it said, you know, soccer is like animals playing a gentleman game yeah while yes. it's like the opposite hooligans playing a gentleman's game versus gentlemen uh, hooligans playing a gentleman's exactly. game exactly soccer is hooligans playing a gentleman's game and rugby is gentlemen playing a hooligans game yeah. i think is what yeah. it is because and, and this is one of my favorite things at, at both in high school and in college was in high school when we got finished with the game the parents of both teams pooled money for pizza. Mm. So we would get done and we would go eat pizza and drink pop with the opponents. Oh, Every time. Really good. It didn't matter. Like you would just, you know, you'd be under the pile punching people, tackling, <laughs> screaming, cussing, and then you're done, you're like, hey man, like have a pe- piece of pepperoni pizza. Here you go. Yeah. And you, know, you just sit down and talk to him like he was a guy. And at Ohio State, we would throw parties and I was a social chair for a while when I was older. And so it was like, Hey, Michigan state's coming to, to play us. All right, great. Like, Hey, let's, let me get their, their team's email address or whatever. And we'd be like, Hey, like, are you guys staying the night after your game? Because sometimes they come and play evening games and have a hotel. Mm-hmm. And so we would say, okay, great. Like you're going to be here. Cool. And we would buy alcohol and we'd throw parties at, at, You know, we'd give them warning if there was some kind of silly theme for the party. And, oh, that's my girlfriend asking what's my ETA. I mean, yeah. Yeah. We kind of just, uh, just finished the, the yeah, I'll finish the story. Yeah. You can edit out this part where I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm texting her. Um. But we would we would have a cookout, we'd have a party, and they would just they would show up and drink for free, and then you know go back to the hotels or wherever they were staying, and then when we went to go places like Wisconsin or Michigan mm-hmm. State or whatever, it'd be the same thing. Like we would be staying overnight, 
and we'd be finished with the games. We'd go back to the hotel, clean up, and then go to these house parties at, you know, these random people in, in Wisconsin, you know, in, in Madison, you know, it's like, okay, like, you know, I think there was a lot, there's a giant, um, one of these things in a front lawn in Wisconsin that I drank and sat in. I don't know why I have that memory, but I'm pretty sure I sat in a lazy boy and drank beer in the front yard at one point in the early 2004 or 5. Who knows? But it was a good time.